Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Bowman, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church, and I just wanted to welcome you this morning. Last week, we started a new sermon series on First and Second Peter that we are calling Helpful Wisdom for Hard Days. First Peter is all about preparing God's people for hard days. And I know that usually we like to be given a list or a checklist or some kind of illustration to help us when we are facing hard times that tells us, that illustrates for us what we should do. And Peter certainly is going to give us that eventually, but I think it's very interesting how he prepares us to hear that, how he sets us up to receive that. And so this morning, we're going to look at the second half of 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, usually when you're reading your Bible and you come across a therefore, it's really important to know what came before it. Because everything that we're going to hear about in our passage this week is going to be based on what Pastor Matt preached about last week. All the things that Peter is going to tell us to do are grounded in the glorious truths and realities that we heard about in the first part of chapter 1. Last week, we saw how Peter starts his letter. He reminds us of the glorious salvation that we have in Jesus. Peter wants us to see how close these two passages are related to each other. One of the things that you should look at when you are reading your Bible, or anything for that matter, but especially your Bible, are the words that are used in particular areas. Every word, I believe, in the Bible is inspired by God, and every word is there for a reason. And one of the things that authors do is that they'll use certain vocabulary to make certain points. And this is what Peter is doing this week. I made this slide here kind of comparing the vocabulary between the two passages this week, and you can definitely tell that a math teacher made this slide. I apologize. But these are all the words that are used in both passages last week and this week. And so really the only thing is that I want you to see is that Peter is using this to make a point. He wants us to see that these two ideas from last week and this week are so closely tied together. So let's take a quick look at last week's passage because it's going to be important to understanding this week's passage. Last week we read about how God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That we have an imperishable inheritance, that we rejoice in this, even when we face various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That our perseverance will result in the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And that this salvation was prophesied by prophets long ago and preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's a good opening paragraph. I wish I could write like that. 
I asked Pastor David to put all these things on a slide so that it could be right in front of us. Shout out, David Hughes, Graphics Ninja. This helps us to be able to see what Peter is talking about. And I think one of the things that's important for us to look at is how all of these glorious truths are connected to each other, because that's exactly what's going to happen in our passage here. So he said that God has given us an inheritance. We have a wonderful inheritance, the salvation. Amen. And not only that, but because we have an inheritance, that causes us to persevere. And because we persevere, we receive the outcome of the salvation of our souls And because we have that salvation that was prophesied long ago, we can have faith in the good news that has been preached to us by the Holy Spirit. And so all these things are going to tie in to what we're going to look at here. These four wonderful truths are going to tie in that what we're going to see here. And this is exactly why Peter starts our passage this morning by saying, therefore, because of, on account of, Because God has done all of these things, because God has given us an inheritance, because God allows us to go through trials that test our faith, and we persevere, and we receive the salvation that was prophesied long ago, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter is doing here? He tells us these four wonderful truths last week, and that that should bring about obedience to the things he's going to tell us this week. And there are going to be four imperatives, there are going to be four commands that Peter is going to give us this week, and this is the first one. The conditions are, we're told, that our faith should make our minds prepared for action and should cause us to be sober-minded. The words prepared for action here in the Greek literally mean gird up your mind. Wear the right work clothes. A modern idiom might be roll up your sleeves. When Peter says, gird up your mind, what he's really saying is prepare your mind for action by arranging it in such a state that it is capable of carrying out effective kingdom work. So the realities of everything that we heard last week should cause us to arrange our minds in a way that makes them fit for action and service. We should have our minds in order. We should be studying the right things. We should be in frequent prayer and fellowship and Bible study. All the things that cause our minds to be ordered correctly. Because as Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. The other thing that this should do for us is make us sober-minded. One thing I think that that doesn't mean is solemn or glum or dispassionate. That's not what sober-minded means. Sober-minded means clear-minded. 
It means you can think straight. The opposite of sober is drunk. And a drunk person doesn't make good decisions or reason rightly or think clearly or walk straight. Knowing the glorious realities of the salvation that we have in Jesus should make us ready for action and it should make us think clearly. And more than that, it should make us want to remain in a sober state. And now comes the imperative. Now comes the command. Theologians have noticed that a lot of the Bible is actually divided into two important categories, indicatives and imperatives. Those are just fancy words that mean truths and commands. And one of the things that we see is that when you read your Bible, what you're going to see is that anytime the Bible tells you to do something, anytime the Bible gives you an imperative, it is based on a truth. It's based on what is already true about you and what God has done. God is not going to give you an imperative and have that cause you to become his child or cause you to gain favor with him. All the things God gives us to do is because of what he has already done for us. The imperatives are always based on the indicatives. What we are commanded to do always flows out of who we already are in Jesus. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religion. It's that it's not based on obedience. Rather, our obedience flows out of what we already are in Jesus. And Peter says as much. When you read your Bible this week, I want you to do something. Anytime you come across a passage that has any kind of command or tells you to do anything, look at what came before it. Look at what it is based on. Last week was all about indicatives. It was all about these wonderful, glorious things that God has done. So, therefore, this week, Peter's going to tell us to do four things. And this week, he tells us the first thing. Being prepared for action and being sober-minded, the first command is set your hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought about at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that he doesn't say set your hope on what you have already received. That is a wonderful thing. What we have already received in Jesus is a wonderful thing. But that is not the source of our hope. Because you don't hope for something you already have. You hope for things that are yet to be accomplished. When Peter says here, set your hope one day, on the grace that you will receive, he's saying, read the back of the book. Look forward to the day that Jesus will return for you because it is certain. That is where our hope should lie. I've heard this phrase recently. Maybe you've heard it too. It's be on the right side of history. Have you heard that? And that can definitely mean different things to different people, but I think the gist of it is this. 
I think when people say be on the right side of history, what they mean is the culture is already going that way. People are already heading in that direction. And you don't want to be left behind, do you? So get on board. Get ahead of the curve. That's where everything is going to end up anyway, isn't it? You don't want to be thought of as backward or regressive or any other label that they could give you, right? This is what people mean when they say, be on the right side of history. What Peter says is different. He says, know how the story's going to end. Because to be on the right side of history is to be on God's side of history. Jesus has already won the victory. To set your hope is to believe in the gospel that God has already saved you and that he will return at the end of time. So we should set our hope on that wonderful promise that God will one day return for us. Now knowing that, how should we act? Peter tells us in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Imperative number two, be holy. Because our hope is in Christ... And because we know that he will return at the last day, we therefore should act as obedient children and not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Our Heavenly Father actually calls us to obedience and holiness because it is in holiness that we most clearly display the character of our Heavenly Father. You shall be holy for I am holy the Lord says. Notice that Peter gives this imperative as both a negative and a positive command. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, and be holy, for I am holy, are the same command. If you're following along in our Bible reading plan as a church this week, you came across this verse, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And he's writing to Christians here. So Christians, we are called to holiness in everything that we do. Peter is quoting Leviticus 11 here. And in Leviticus, holiness is all about wholeness. To be unholy is to be unwhole. Holiness is the state that we were created for. Holiness is not something that we ignore as New Testament Christians. Holiness does not make you a child of God, but rather is a response as a child of God. Again, we see here that the imperative is based on the indicative. Because we are obedient children of God, be holy. It doesn't say be holy so that you can be an obedient child of God. 
Live up to your calling, Peter says, to be holy. Because you already are a blood-bought child of the Most High God. Here's what the gospel doesn't say. The gospel doesn't say, go clean yourself up for a while. Go act good for a little bit. Go do some good works for a while, and then come back, and God will accept you. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Live up to our calling as Christians and as obedient children. Children are not naturally obedient, are they? And all the parents said, amen, yes. Mike Lanning has five, he knows, right? And I think that this is even something that we as Christians can struggle with as God's children. Children have to learn conformity to standards laid down by their parents, don't they? Without guidance, children would not naturally do the right thing. All these, like, trendy, permissive parenting strategies where kids are given no boundaries and no commands by their parents and no rules, that is junk, man. Trust me, I teach public high school. I see the fruit of that every single day. Because children are natural-born sinners, just like you and me. They naturally do what's easy, and what feels good, and what their emotions tell them. But this is something that even Christians struggle with. Does anyone else feel the temptation to struggle with disobedience as a child of God? I tell you what, being a father has opened my eyes to so many things in the Bible. And I had this particular moment, this was a few months ago, and I, w- I was with my son, and I was particularly frustrated with him. Okay, he's, he's three years old, my, my son Nathan, and I love him to death, but my wife, Kimberly, says that a three-year-old is just a two-year-old who can break things. <laughs> like my TV. <laughs> but this was before he broke the TV. So... So I'm, I'm in my room with my son, okay, with my three-year-old son, and he was being particularly disobedient and destructive. And so I'll, I'll never forget this. I'm in my room with my son, and I'm trying to get through to him. And in one of my not-so-good fatherly moments, I said in a voice that was probably a little bit too loud, I was just really frustrated, and I just said, Nathan, just obey me. And I kid you not, in that moment, I heard in my head a very still a very small voice, and it said, obey me. And I was just wrecked. (laughs) I'm the disobedient three-year-old. I'm the one that has trouble obeying. I'm the one that God looks at me like I was looking at my son. Because it's not just that I want my son to stop throwing stuff. It's that I want him to learn obedience because in the future when I try to teach him things that are really going to affect his life, I want him to know how to obey. That's why I want him to learn obedience. And church, 
That's the way that God looks at us when it comes to obedience. It's not so that God can love us more. It's that he wants what's best for us. And he looks at us like I was looking at my son, except much, much more patiently. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Imperative number three, conduct yourselves with fear. Again, this imperative is based on an indicative, the truth that we already call God as father. But as a father, he also judges. God is impartial. He is the good judge who is consistent in all his justice. And even though we are his beloved children, our deeds will still be brought into judgment. Not according to salvation, but according to our reward on how well we lived the obedient Christian life. You don't get saved based on what you do. You get saved based on what Christ has already done. No one can obey their way to God. Every good deed you ever do should be out of loving thankfulness to the God who has graciously saved you. Peter says this should create fear in us. How common is that message that you should fear God today? That's not a message that you're going to see on Instagram or on podcasts or on those little cute flip verse-a-day calendars. Peter just shared two very true but inconvenient truths. That God is a judge and God is to be feared. Even by his children. And remember, Peter is talking to Christians here. He says, don't think you will escape judgment just because you now call God Father. Don't think that God will let you get away with unholiness. Don't think that God is going to be lenient with his standards now that you call him Father. And this is a fine line, isn't it? The image of a cold, impartial judge and the image of a warm and loving father are two very different things. But here's what Peter says. God is both the impartial judge and the loving father. And listen, this is exactly why God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Because God is both loving and just. Therefore, we should conduct ourselves with fear that leads us to obedience. One commentator said, our knowledge of him as father must not dispel our dread of him as our judge. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. 
You're not ignorant anymore. You have knowledge. The knowledge that you were ransomed. You were bought. You were redeemed. You were purchased. This idea of ransom comes up in Psalm 49. It's up on the screen. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The ransom for your life is costly. Who can pay it? It took the blood of Jesus to pay it so that you could live forever. In the Bible, often this idea of ransom is tied to the redemption price that was paid to free a slave. It's the price paid to buy freedom. And Peter says, you were slaves. You were slaves. You were slaves to those feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers. Their forefathers thought that they could redeem themselves. They thought that they could obey their way to God. They thought obedience caused salvation. They thought that the indicative was based on the imperative. Peter says no. Peter says salvation causes obedience. Our ransom was not paid with gold or silver or things that are perishable. Things that you would use to buy off a slave. It was paid with something so much more precious. The blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot in the Old Testament. Our forefathers should have known that all these sacrifices and all these offerings were not the precious thing. They should have known that they pointed to something better that was to come. The blood of Jesus is the precious thing. It all points to him. Do you consider the blood of Jesus to be precious? Or do you consider it to be cheap or junk by the ways you walk in disobedience and unholiness? Peter says it cost Jesus his life. It cost God the blood of his son to ransom you. And if it cost the father the blood of his son to purchase us, to ransom us, to redeem us. When we live in unholiness and count Jesus' blood as nothing, how do you think the Father will judge us? After what it cost him? And Village Church, like, I'm speaking to myself here just as much this morning as well. Me, you, and everyone in here. We need to stop treating the blood of Christ like junk. We need to start living in holiness that treats the blood of Christ that it took to pay for our sins as the most precious thing in the universe. Because what is precious to God cannot be cheap for us. When we are content to live unholy lives, we are saying that Jesus' blood is cheap. And if you're not yet a Christian, I invite you 
to look to Jesus and his sacrifice as your most precious treasure. And you can do that today. Maybe you sometimes wonder why Christians get so serious sometimes when it comes to Jesus or when it comes to obedience. This is why. Because it took the blood of Jesus to purchase us back from our futile ways. Look at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What does it mean that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world? It means that the plan of God to accomplish your salvation and mine was planned by God before he created the world. Adam's sin was not a surprise to God. God is perfectly capable of knowing everything that was to happen. And he had already thought of his plan to redeem humanity. You might ask, how can that be true? That's what the Bible says. God is so sovereign that he knew everything that would happen, and God is not the least bit taxed or burdened in carrying out every one of his purposes. That's a big God. And Peter says, although God foreknew that he would send Jesus before the foundation of the world, he was made manifest in these last times at the perfect time of his plan for our sake so that we could be believers in God and have faith and hope in him. And he validated Jesus' message by raising him from the dead. Verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Imperative number four, love one another. Again, we see the flow of Peter's argument. The command to love one another is based on the truths that came before it. Obedience to the truth has purified our souls and given us a sincere brotherly love. And since we've been born again, therefore we should love one another. This love that Peter talks about is demonstrated in community. I think a lot of people in the church these days are feeling a longing for community, especially coming out of everything that's happened the last couple of years and the lockdowns and the isolation. I think a lot of Christians were hoping that now that we're starting to come out of all of that stuff years later, that we'd be able to get back to a fruitful and enjoyable community. And I think a lot of Christians are feeling like it's not like it used to be. Community somehow is not the same. If that's you, I know a lot of Christians who are feeling the exact same way. But you know what? That need that you're feeling is the solution to that same need someone else is feeling. So go get in 
community. Invite someone to dinner or coffee or to the park. Get in a community group. It's literally called a community group. <laughs> Sign up for our dinner club or for the mountain biking club. I hear we have one of those now. Attend a mom meetup. Love on one another. You're actually commanded to. Now, to some of you, that might sound a bit odd. Peter here says that love is a command. Love is a command. And let me just say that everything that you hear about love from the world today is completely backwards from the way that the Bible talks about love. Here's how the world defines love. I love who I want. I get to decide. No one can tell me who to love or how to love. It's all based on me and my feelings, and I can fall in love with someone. I can fall out of love with someone, and that's just how it goes. Sorry. But it's all about my preferences, my desires, my will, and I will love who I want without any compulsion from anybody. This is not the way that the Bible talks about love. This is the way the world does. When it's based solely on my desires and my preferences. Because after all, it's not love unless I'm free, right? Does that sound about right? This way of thinking about love is the exact opposite of the way the Bible talks about it. So if we want to be Christians that take the Bible seriously and we want to take God's command to love one another seriously, we should really look at the way that the Bible defines love. And we'll do that here in a second, but I had to throw this in from C.S. Lewis. I was not born to be free. I was born to adore and obey. I love that. You and I were born to adore God and to obey Him. And if that doesn't align with the world's definition of being free, so be it. My basic argument to you is this. In the Bible, love is most often described as having these two aspects. Love is a command, and love requires action. I'll prove it to you. Look at Matthew 22. We're going straight to the words of Jesus here. You want to know about the Bible? You get your interpretation from Jesus. You want to know how to define love? Go to Jesus. Okay, Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says you can sum up the entire Old Testament with these two things. Love God perfectly with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some of you might be thinking, how can God command me to love him? 
I thought in order for it to be love, I had to be free of compulsion or command. Love isn't love if it's a command, they would say. That's not the way Bible, the Bible talks about love. Guess what? You don't get to choose whether you love God or not as a Christian. It's a command. You don't get to choose whether you love your neighbor or not as a Christian. It's a command. And as a child of God, God makes claims on you. He gets to tell you how you should act. And what God said is, love me. You might be thinking, what kind of a God is that? Here's the difference. Loving God is the greatest gift that he could give to any of us. Because God is the most joyful, happiest, most wonderful being that any of us could be attached to in this life. So God's command for us to love him and our desire for happiness are the exact same pursuit. Loving God will result in our greatest happiness. And this is what God wants for you. God's commands are not burdensome. They are not arbitrary. I think some people think of God as some cosmic killjoy who's just out to ruin their fun. But the exact opposite is actually true. When the world follows God's commands, it actually results in the greatest amount of human flourishing. And he has given us these commands because it will result in our greatest joy, in our neighbor's greatest good, and in God's greatest glory. That's a big God. Christians, you're commanded to love God and to love your neighbor for the very reason that God loved us, first by sending his son to die for us. This is what it means to be a Christian. Husbands, you're commanded to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't get a choice whether to love my wife, although I do, because she's just so lovable. She's got the hard part. She has to love me. Husbands, you're commanded to love your wives. That's what it means to be a husband. The second aspect of love is that it requires action. Love is not just a feeling. Again, I'll prove it to you. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, what did God do? Christ died for us. God loves us, so he did something about it. John 15, 13, greater love has none than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends. The greatest kind of love leads to action, even to the extent of laying down your life for the ones you love, just like Jesus did for us. John 14, 15, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. And again, I could go on and on. But love requires action. One commentator wrote, Righteous behavior before others defines love. 
This is what Peter's talking about. But Peter is not asking us to do something that we are incapable of doing. In fact, God promises that because we are Christians, that the Holy Spirit will enable us to carry out the commands to love him and to love our neighbor. And this is actually our good news this morning. Every Sunday, we want to give you good news because we believe that God and the Bible are all together good. And so we want to relate what we're learning this morning to the gospel. And so our good news statement this morning is this. Because we have been born again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now obey God by loving him and our neighbor with our actions. This is what obedience looks like in the Christian life. And Peter backs up this claim by quoting Scripture. Verse 24, he quotes Isaiah 40 here. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Because the word of the Lord remains forever, and Peter says this word is the good news that was preached to us. That phrase, good news, is the same phrase that he used last week. And it's a word in Greek, which is just evangelion. This is where we get the word evangelism. The good news is just the gospel. Peter says, this is the gospel that was preached to you, that the word of the Lord will remain forever and in Jesus, he has brought us into his family. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. So, as you can see, and we'll put it up here, all four of these imperatives are based on wonderful truths. Again, shout out David Hughes, Graphics Ninja. But we can see here that everything that God commands us to do is based on these wonderful truths and realities. He has done all the work ahead of time. And so now he asks us and commands us to be obedient. This brings up a good question. Well, then what's the role of obedience in the life of a Christian? If it's not based on salvation, if we can't obey our way to God, then what does obedience, what, how does it function? How does it, how does it play? And there's a lot of answers that we could offer to this question. The first thing is to emphasize that Christians are not justified based on our obedience to the law. We are justified by the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Last week in our Apprentice Academy, providentially, I taught on the doctrine of justification. And this Tuesday, I'll teach on the doctrine of sanctification. Now, I teach math for a living, so, trigger warning, okay? The following slide contains math symbols that may be traumatizing or harmful to some audiences, okay? So just putting that out there. You ready? Go for it. <laughs> justification does not equal sanctification. Ooh, and some of you just shivered. <laughs> Flashback to 10th grade. Okay, these two are not the same thing. These are just big theological words that mean exactly what your Bible says. 
Justification means how can sinners be found just before a holy and righteous God? And the only answer is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The other word, sanctification, means how can sinners grow in holiness and conformity to the moral standards that God commands? The answer is there are many ways, including frequent practices of prayer and Bible reading and fasting and spiritual disciplines. But your exercise of these things is not the same as being found righteous before God. You contribute nothing to your standing before God. I repeat, you contribute nothing to your standing before God. Because guess what? If your standing before God depended on you, if my standing before God depended on me, we would all fail. No one can obey their way to God. The only way for us to be found righteous before God is placing our hope and trust in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for us. But being conformed to Jesus' image in holiness and obedience, we can contribute to that. We can resist the Holy Spirit's call for us to engage in these disciplines towards repentance, towards turning from sin. This is the work of the Holy Spirit inside us that each Christian has. Tomorrow I'll be sending out an email as Pastor Matt has been doing after a lot of our sermons, and it'll walk us through what theologians usually talk about with the three uses of the law in the life of a Christian. So be on the lookout for that. To wrap up, God has given us his word and how we should obey him. And he has told us that his word endures forever. And today, Christians, we seek to obey God even when it means we will face hard times. Because hard times are coming. Obedience is going to get hard. Peter was not ambivalent to suffering. In fact, Peter would undergo a lot of suffering for his obedience. Church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified in Rome precisely because he chose to follow the commands of Jesus and preach his gospel. Even when we know we will face trials, God commands us to be obedient for the glory of his name, for the good of our neighbor, and for his glory. Remember our good news statement Because we've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now obey God by loving him and our neighbor with our actions. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for your word and we're thankful for this time, Lord, that we can see that you call us to obedience and you call us to holiness. Not so that we can be your children, but because we are your children. And out of thankfulness and gratitude for what you have given us, the gift of your son to die on our behalf. So Lord, I pray that as we strive to live this Christian life of obedience and holiness, that we would be open to your Holy Spirit calling us to conform to the image of your son in the ways that you would have us. That we would love you as our wonderful father 
that we would fear you with the fear that you deserve. And that when we mess up, we know that you'll be waiting there with open arms to welcome us again because you're our good father and have made us a family. We thank you for this time and pray this all in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.